please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and yes, in some cases, offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, you know what? There is very adult content ahead, and you know what? You've been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, Relax and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we are picking up where we left off from last week and finishing up the story about the crazy-ass murder of Betsy Feria. As always, we will be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. And it is so fucking cold out there, so I'm pretty sure that nobody has anywhere that they really gotta go tonight because it's too goddamn cold. Anyways, I will leave the choice of libation up to you, my darlings, so choose your venom accordingly. Alright, for the game part this week, well, how about we keep it easy and use the same as we did last week? So every time I say money, that's gonna be a single shot, and every time I say knife, that'll be a double shot. Alright, we got the business end out of the way. We can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma and the crazy-ass story of Betsy Faria's murder, her husband's trial, and her so-called best friend's multiple stories. Okay, so how about we do a little recap here. And it's going to be really little because it's cold and I'm tired. So, I love you, but seriously, I gotta get some sleep. Betsy Feria had survived one round of chemo and had just celebrated her birthday only to find out that her cancer was back with a vengeance. Her friend Pamela Hupp had talked her into changing her life insurance so that Pamela was now the beneficiary instead of Betsy's husband or her children. Then Betsy's husband Russ, despite having a rock salad alibi and never wavering from his story not once, was arrested and put on trial for her murder. And Pam Hupp, well, she changed her story like multiple times, hasn't provided any solid alibi, and yet is not on trial for anything, and has received funds from life insurance policies to boot. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but I really smell something seriously rotten in the state of Denmark, and it isn't the cheese. All right, my darlings, let's jump right back into where we left off. So detail by detail, Schwartz went through the forensics, his timing and the alibi. He even addressed Askey's early, earlier theory that Russ had stabbed his wife in a spontaneous fit of rage and cleaned up in a matter of mere minutes because the guy's fucking Superman, don't you know? This was a murder designed to look like rage, Swartz said. There were no irregularities in those stab wounds. They were methodically neatly aligned, no wiggle to the blade at all. Many were likely inflicted after death that hadn't even bled. As prosecutor, Askey had the final word. There isn't any evidence that points anywhere else. 
And when Schwartz objected, well, the jury was told to disregard the statement. But many of them must have agreed with it. One juror actually scribbled a note. They're trying to pin this on Pam Hupp. In four and a half hours, they returned a verdict of guilty. Schwartz squeezed Russ's shoulder and shot Swanson a grim look. We are just going to do this all over again. When the judge asked counsel whether they wanted to set a date for the sentencing, Schwartz fired back, you mean for a new trial, right? Days later, jury members told the press that they thought Russ's alibi was a little too pat, his friend's stories a little too similar. A group of people who meet every week, talk a bit, and then play a game or watch movies. I really just don't know how much variation there could possibly have been. And Schwartz's poor client was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Asked what she would have predicted for Pam Newman's future, a high school friend gives a long, slow laugh and says, Not this. A great mother who was involved in her kids' activities, maybe. Another friend remembers Pam as nice, not extra nice, just someone you wouldn't mind hanging out with. I even knew her after after high school. She'd moved back into the neighborhood, same church, and sent her daughter to the same Catholic grade school as mine. She was even active in the women's club. The friend's voice becomes bemused. When I see her on TV, the way she acts in the interviews with police, that is not the person I knew. So, either there really is some brain trauma, or she's been railroaded in a scheme worthy of fucking Hitchcock, or nobody ever really knew her at all. I'm going to go ahead and say my vote is for the last one. Pam gave us a few clues. She was confident and breezy, and nothing ever seemed to bother her. She loved finding out about people, investigating their backgrounds, figuring them out. She once told a detective, I just like to get a feeling of what people are like. Really, did she ever confide any troubles of her own, except maybe accidents or chronic pain, or various plans to sue people? Her back, neck, and leg pain were so disabling, she was unable to work, she claimed, and she received monthly disability checks. Yet, videos show her walking with ease, running away from a fox camera, and, well, we all run away from fox cameras, but, okay, and crossing her legs without even so much as a wince. She even managed to take a Zumba class. Now, I'm going to tell you, you know what, I don't have chronic pain, and, you know, I, I pretty much move around easily enough for a young person, and I've taken a Zumba class, and let me tell you, that shit kicked my ass. If any of you have ever taken a Zumba class, I'm telling you, like, two minutes in, I was like, I can't breathe, and I had to go. So, seriously, she took a Zumba class? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to even say it. And Schwartz asked her husband in deposition, are you aware of what her injuries are? And he responded, no, not totally. And he says, at what point in time was she injured? Yeah, I don't have an answer for that one. The Hups had been, by all accounts, harmonious partners in both life and business for three decades. Okay, I don't even have friends that I like for that long. Well, maybe maybe my bestie, and I love Richie, and I love Lady L. Yeah, okay, so maybe those three and nobody else. Okay, well, maybe a few of the fans, because you guys are kind of awesome. Which, by the way, when I said that I sucked last week, I love that, like, so many of you took your time to just send me an email to say, ha, 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 yes, you do suck. Thank you for that, by the way. 
forgot to mention that. Anyways, Pam called the shots in the marriage, people said, but Mark didn't seem to mind. He was the quiet one. Pam was the conversationalist. She loved American Idol and The Apprentice and murder mysteries, movies of any genre, and she adored the scandal sheets. I'm not surprised, she would say, of some juicy celeb revelation. She was easy company. I never saw her get mad, says someone who knew her over several years. Extremely conservative in her politics. If there was a risk that something would cost her money, she didn't want anything to do with it. She was financially driven and she was cheap. They never went on vacations, didn't even go away for weekends. Pam had held a string of low-paying insurance jobs before applying for disability, yet she gave the impression of having plenty of money, sensible money, tucked into investments not flashed in your face. The years in Naples, Florida were a turning point of sorts, old friends would say, because when she came back, she didn't renew her old friendships or even make many new ones. Betsy reportedly said that she felt sorry for Pam because, though she was hardly shy, she really didn't have very many friends. She could be sentimental, though, and after Betsy's death, she went often to see Betsy's mother, even buying her a necklace with a tiny diamond in it and a matching one for herself in memory of Betsy. Then, all of a sudden, says Bobby Wan, she just quit showing up probably because of tension over Betsy's life insurance. If Lincoln County detectives had suspected Pam, that settlement would have been the most obvious motive. Just how much did money matter to her? She tells them, I have no debt. Still don't have debt. Still drive a 2004 vehicle. Which, of course, later she bought a 2016 GMC Acadia. I didn't have an immediate need for money, she continues. Is it great? Yeah, it's great. Asked about the life insurance money, she shrugged. She was dying. It worked out, If it worked out that way, great. $150,000 when you're not expecting it? That's pretty damn nice, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say right now I would be happy with like $1,000. Or even even $500. I'm like, it's almost Christmas. You know what? Everybody just send me $5. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. She acknowledged that she might sound morbid, but reminded them that she was a finance person. I had a life insurance on my son. It's almost like that. I know if our son gets into a car accident or dies, whatever, because he's young, I'm going to get that money. You don't think about it. You don't think I'm going to get some money. Get a boat. But yet, in another interview with police, she said, To me, in my world, $150,000 is not that much. Can I live in that fucking world? Because $150,000 would, like, make my fucking life right now. When a lawyer asked about a deposit to her bank account, and she said she didn't know where it came from, he said, Where else would you receive $134,000 from? Incensed, she lost her usual peace of mind. Where else would you receive it? from anywhere I could receive it from my brother I could receive it from my mother I could receive it from what do you think I'm poor I don't know people I don't know what you're insinuating well it's true that Pam didn't grow up deprived or desperate for cash nor did she need money as solace for a traumatic childhood her father was a was the beloved type she taught third graders volunteered and did thoughtful things 
A few people do say she was less warm with her daughter, though, they remember. Subtly means remarks, little tiny digs aimed at improving Pam, who in later years contented herself with an eye roll in response. So basically a mother, because my mother does that all the time. She was closer, she says, to her father who died in 2000. After cash-strapped years as a newlywed and an early divorce, money took on a new urgency for Pam. She'd waited tables at 16 and loved the tips, but now money was a grown-up game, and she realized that she was good at it. Her first husband wound up in court a year after the divorce, toting a stack of canceled checks to prove that he'd been paying child support all along. And one story still gets brought up incredulously. Friends say that when Pam's daughter was first married, she found a house she loved, a foreclosure. Excited, she confided what she planned to bid to her mom, who promptly underbid her, got the house, and flipped it. That's really nice. Pam and Mark did their real estate transactions through H2 Partners LLC, but in 2014 she registered a new company, H2 Partners Building Solutions, listing herself as president. The business address was the Hup's new house, purchased after Pam received Betsy's life insurance money. They sold that house the next year, of course. You did pretty well, one of the detectives told her, because most people can't sell a house for $250,000 these days. She flashed back to them, you haven't seen my house. When it comes to money, a friend remarked, she short circuits. As she herself once remarked to Lincoln County detectives, money is, makes people do crazy, crazy things. Toward the end of the trial and out of the jury's earshot, Schwartz asked Pam why it took her so long to set up the trust for Betsy's daughters. She replies, My mother just died on October 31st of Alzheimer's that I was taking care of. Now he took that on faith, because who would lie about something like that? But the day after the trial ended, emails poured in saying Pam Hupp's mother didn't die of Alzheimer's. In fact, Shirley Newman was showing signs of dementia, but what killed her was a fall from the balcony of her third floor apartment. Two of the upright metal balusters had broken and were lying on the ground next to her body. Not one, but two. And four more had bent outward, creating an opening almost three feet square. But the guardrail on top was completely intact. And... She had eight times the typical dose of Ambien in her system. Now, I don't know about you, but I've taken Ambien before. And let me tell you, if I take more than a quarter of an Ambien, like I will sleep for 17 hours straight. Now, I'm one of those people that I like to keep my door shut and I lock my bedroom door because, you know, I live by myself and I live in an apartment. So if somebody can get into my apartment, they're going to have to get through my through my bedroom door. So it buys me an extra few minutes to get out of the bed, pop out the window and, you know, scream and yell for help. But seriously, Ambien will make you walk and do crazy things. So I'm the first one to say that, you know what, there's always that. But how the hell... Do you have eight times the typical dose? Which, by the way, a typical dose of Ambien is two pills. Okay? So she had to have taken 16 pills. Okay? I'm not buying that. Okay. Anyways, Newman lived at Lakeview Park, an assisted living community in Fenton. 
but she spent the night of October 29th with Pam after a trip to the hospital for back pain. On October 30th, the community manager told police Pam had brought her mother back around 5 p.m. and told staff not to expect her for dinner or breakfast the following morning, but said that she probably would eat lunch. Now, Pam's brother, Michael Newman, later said Pam had told staff to call the family if Shirley didn't come to breakfast. He filed a wrongful death suit against the residents and the manufacturer of the railing, but dropped the suit after Pam was charged with Gumpenberger's murder, saying it would be a circus and would not return calls for comment. So after lunch, a housekeeper went to check on Shirley and found the apartment door cracked, water running in the bathroom, and the patio door open. She peered over the broken balcony railing and saw Newman's body sprawled in the, gla- the grass below. She was wearing her nightclothes still. She'd been confused recently and she'd had a fall. Maybe she'd forgotten she'd taken an Ambien and took, well, seven more. Maybe she was groggy, tried to water her flowers, and tripped because two garden gnomes on the balcony were toppled over and a glass was on its side. Maybe she had managed to evade the guardrail and fall against the lower part of the railing with speed and force, like, you know, a Mack truck at 70 miles an hour, I guess. But all Schwartz could think about was Pam's nonchalant remark to the detective in charge of the Feria investigation. If I really, I hate to say it, wanted money, my mom's worth half a million that I get when she dies. If I really wanted money, there was an easier way. Huh. Well, I have to say my mom's worth an awful lot of money, but you know what? I love her and I don't want nothing to happen to her. In fact, that's one thing that we don't talk about. I told her I don't want to even know what she's leaving me, because to be perfectly honest, I would rather have my mother. And... I love my mother, and she better live until at least I die first, because I can't live without her. I'm sure you guys feel the same way about your moms. But when Hayes showed up at Pam's house on a bitter day in January, armed with a microphone to ask about her mother's death, she was chatty, talking for more than 30 minutes through a cracked door. And she said, the people in the home are saying she committed suicide, so I'm not really sure what's going on, she said. She'd been planning to move her mom out of that senior community, she added, because she couldn't afford to live there anymore. She would have talked longer if her husband hadn't pulled up, Hayes said. She said, he's not going to be happy that I'm talking to you. Dateline NBC later asked a structural engineer to examine the posts, and he said, it would take a lawnmower or a vehicle to cause that much bending. A 210-pound woman, even if she fell headlong into the balusters, would exert 420 pounds of force, nowhere near enough. In the end, police investigated but did not deem Shirley Newman's death suspicious. Because why the fuck would they, right? On July 21, 2014, Pam gave a deposition for a civil trial. Betsy's daughters were suing her. In the video, she sits clad in a bright pink t-shirt, hands folded on the table in front of her. She smiles as she is sworn in, but there are new signs of nerves. She works her mouth, sucking her lips in and licking them. She says, Joe, Schwartz, and messes up the pronunciation of Faria, says 97 when she means 77. 
Asked how much money she inherited from her mother, she initially refuses to say, then says $100,000. What about her swaggering comment to detectives? My mom is worth a half a million that I get when she dies. She laughs as though that's absurd and reminds them that the money had to be split four ways among the siblings. Jen America recorded an insurance payout to Pam Hupp after the death of her mother, but it was only for $3,589.02 from a policy designed to pay funeral expenses only. Asked whether Betsy was her best friend, Pam corrects attorney David Booch, one of my best friends. But less than a minute later, she says firmly, she was my best friend, Betsy loved me. Whether she said to people I was her best friend, she loved me. Asked whether Betsy put anything in writing that would show this love, Pam mentions cards signed Love Betsy. Well, you know what? I I sign cards all the time that say Love Nicole. And half the time I don't know who the fuck I'm writing them to. So that doesn't mean shit. Anyways, she continues, She would want me to have whatever she had, Pam continued. In her view, I was rich. Then he asks, did she mention to you that she wanted the money to be used for her daughters? And she responded, absolutely not. Now, I don't know any mother in the world who loves their children, lives with their children, cares for their children, and doesn't want their children to have everything that they have, including any life insurance money. I don't even live with my mother, and she wants me to have everything. Just to make sure that I take care of my sister, which I will because I love my sister. But she makes sure that me and my sister are taken care of. So why on earth would she say that she doesn't want anything to go to her kids? That's bullshit. I'm not, I'm calling bullshit on this one. Shenanigans, damn it. Shenanigans. Anyways, in June 2012, when McCarrick interviewed Pam, she told him Betsy had been afraid the girls would blow through the money if they got it all right away. So she intended to hold them to certain criteria. No wild behavior, no spending it on parties or cars, and I'm doing that in honor of Betsy, she said. McCarrick urged her to set up a trust for the girls for their sake, but also for the sake of appearances. She waited until a week before the November 2013 trial to fund the trust with $100,000. By then, She and Mark had bought a brand new four-bedroom house on Shelby Point in O'Fallon. She didn't use trust money, she she assured Butch. She cashed in IRAs from MetLife with little Snoopy. Butch, of course, arched an eyebrow, and I did too, because I was like, seriously, MetLife with little Snoopy? Because um, that would be the insurance side of things, not IRAs, but okay. But what made him pick up the phone and call Schwartz was Pam's admission that the trust, which she'd virtually emptied a few weeks after Russ's trial, no longer existed at all. It's a revocable trust, she said, so I just revoked it. Schwartz thanked the other attorney, hung up, reached for a pen, and started drafting what's called a Mooney motion. He'd already filed an appeal, but this motion told the court there was fresh evidence for a judge to consider, evidence that might negate the guilty verdict. A Mooney motion had been granted only three times in Missouri's history. This one would make four. On February 25, 2015, Russ Feria's case was remanded, and in June, it was decided that he would get a new trial. 
The first time around, an officer had testified that nothing developed when police darkened the house and did the Blue Star blood analysis, so the jury would have to take their word for it. But in the summer of 2015, Schwartz received a CD sent by someone in ASCII's office that held 132 crime scene photographs he'd never seen before. Some images were almost completely black. Some showed a very slight luminescence that could have been caused by interaction with substances other than blood, and the rest were daylit shots of the rest of the house. So it's not that they didn't develop, he thought. It's that the photos didn't show what they wanted them to. He also received anonymously a printout of an email that looked like it had been sent to ASCII by Mike Lang, then captain of investigations in Lincoln County, and indicated an intense romantic relationship between them. He states, This is not a poppy, puppy dog crush on the hot girl in high school kind of love. This is an epic shit stories are written about kind of love. Lang had purportedly written, I will do my best to be everything you need. Oh, hand to forehead. Yes, I know. I know. Well, we had to have it in there somewhere. It was Lang, Schwartz remembered, who never bothered to request data to map Russ's cell phone the night of the murder. Askey denied having an affair with Lang and said the email had been doctored. She didn't return calls seeking comment on any aspect of this story, nor did Lang. Next, Schwartz and Swanson received a new videotaped interview. Apparently, Pam had brought fresh information to Lincoln County detectives that June. Swanson hit play, watched for a minute, replayed it, let out a low, slow expletive, and I'm guessing it was fuck, and texted Schwartz. Pam was now saying that she and Betsy had been lovers. O-M-fucking-G, right? That neither was a lesbian, but trauma had made Betsy hungry for a sexual relationship with Pam. So Pam had replaced what a husband would be. It was a small, small thing to give her, Pam says on the video. And Detective Mike Merkel replies, Well, that's the problem solver in you. You knew that would help her. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, seriously, I just want to take this detective and smack the living snot out of him. And he continues on the video. You guys had that full cycle. You guys had the life, and this is something Leah Askey and I have talked about. You guys had the life and the death, really, because of the cancer. So you were there for her in every aspect. The notion that pity on either side tipped the women into a lesbian affair brings a snort from one longtime acquaintance, who states... Pam was the most homophobic person I'd ever met. She'd say, that's not normal, that's not right. But it explained how Betsy could have wanted Pam to have the money. And it set Russ's potential motives on fire. At the start of the investigation, Pam had said, he seems nice enough. I just don't know him that well. But in this new video, she says that a month or so before Betsy's death, they were together at Betsy's house, and Russ came home, pushed Pam up against the wall. I could feel his spit. Nasty. Got his arm around her neck and said, If you ever come over here again, it'll be the last time. If you two fucking muff bumpers, if I ever catch you guys again, I'm going to bury you in the backyard. Okay, seriously? Seriously? 
muff bumpers. That is my new favorite thing ever. Pam says she was scared, though she adds quickly, I wasn't intimidated. So how how are you scared but not intimidated? The fuck? She also says that Betsy planned to tell Russ that night that she was leaving him. Now, Bobby Wan, who was there, says that that is not true at all. Betsy just wanted Russ to move with her to her parents' house in Lake St. Louis. Toward the end of the interview, Pam talks about how hard this experience has been. The inconsistent, the flat-out lies. When people say a lie about me, I make it a point to prove them wrong, if I can. I'm not a perfect person, not even really a nice person. She's upset at accusations of fraud and says she's been drugged through the mud. Then she says if you really want the truth, you're going to get it. Might as well go all the way with it. Merkel asks a little nervously, so as far as going all the way with it, how far, how close are we to that? Which she never really does answer. Four months later, in October, one month before trial, Pam shows up with more news. She'd recovered a memory. She saw Russ at the crime scene. Back in 2012, she told detectives that she did not see Russell on the night of Betsy's murder. In summer of 2015, one of the detectives told Pam they thought Russ might have come home while Pam was there. And they said, this is what we have discussed amongst ourselves. Is any part of that correct? Did you see Russ that night? To which she says, no. But here she was a few months later on videotape saying she drove the the route to Betsy's house and stood outside and realized that she did see a car that night. It wasn't white, but it was light. I recall it was uh, silverish. It was parked near Betsy's house. There were two men inside, and one of them, she now adamantly believes, was Russ Feria. She's talking faster than before, and her voice is eager, not so flat, when she describes one of the men ducking as she drove past him on her way home. She says she didn't notice much more. I was still so freaked out by my whole situation. Like, seriously? Like, seriously, somebody, like, hooked this woman up to a lie detector test that every time she lies, gives her a little zots. Because this lady is so fucking lying. And how do these people not realize that this woman is so full of shit? Like, I don't even know this woman, and I know she's full of shit. You guys don't know these people, and I'm telling you, you guys know that she's full of shit, right? And at this point, she's no longer saying the vehicle in the drive was a silver Nissan. As far as I can remember, it was an SUV. Which means, of course, that the silverish car could have been the Nissan. My brain has been almost like a boxer's brain, she confides. Severe head injuries, three accidents in a row, plus the Ambien all those years. Because you can't sleep with a head injury. So you have a little bit of a foothold here. One of the detectives says kindly, Someone I used to know had the exact same thing. A concussion and suddenly return of lost memories. So she says, also, Ambien also does some really wicked stuff to your memory. Yeah, because it seems to apparently make up whole new fucking memories that you never fucking had before. The detective nods, says he has a son on Ambien who will eat a pie at night and not even remember. Now, I will say that, you know what, yeah, when you're on Ambien, you can do some weird shit, which is why I lock my doors and I make sure that I can't get out of the house because, you know, as long as I'm in the house, it's all good. Um, I've actually gotten up and taken a shower on Ambien, woke up the next morning and my hair is wet and I'm like, what the fuck did I do? But 
seriously, like, it does not fuck with your memory. I've never had it mess with my memory. So if you guys have had that, then you know what? I will take that on face value. But I'm not buying that shit. You have to be actually asleep and not know that you did these things. So it doesn't invent new memories. And it doesn't delete the memories you have. It's just things that you do while you're on Ambien. When you're technically asleep and you're not awake is what I see. Anyways, Pam segues back into her recovered memory. The more I talk about it, the clearer it gets. Because the more you talk about it, the more you believe that shit is true. And in a deposition the previous summer, when the attorney for Betsy's daughters asked whether Pam had had any memory problems, she says no. But before Russ's first trial, she informed detectives, you can ask me in two days and it will probably be different again. Okay, anybody who says that to a detective should immediately be be put in handcuffs because they're obviously lying in february of 2016 when the civil suit went to trial she would say the memory that comes to my head at that moment for that question is the memory i think i remember that has got to be the most bullshit answer i have ever heard in my life and if you guys are not laughing at that fucking thing let me say it again the memory that comes to my head at that moment for that question is the memory i think i remember Like, it sounds like the stupidest person on the face of the fucking planet trying to explain what a memory is. Head injuries can certainly cause memory loss, but it's not usually selective. It's good when she wants it to be good, and it's bad when she wants it to be bad. And that's Richard Whitehead after reading excerpts from her deposition. After 33 years in law enforcement, Richard Whitehead now trains people in detecting deception. And he says she doesn't counter when she's caught in a lie. And she's pretty bold and brazen about it. The best liars note the authors of pitfalls and opportunities in nonverbal and verbal lie detection are those individuals, A, who naturally, whose natural behavior disarms suspicion, B, who do not find it cognitively difficult to lie, C, who do not experience emotions such as fear, guilt, or delight when they are lying. D, who are good actors and who display a seemingly honest demeanor. E, whose attractiveness may lead to an inference of virtue and honesty. And or F, who are good psychologists. Lying lying is easiest for people with high confidence and low emotion they say because there's less to conceal and less angst about concealing it so in short a sociopath mark mcclish a retired deputy u.s marshal who is president of advanced interviewing concepts says in general it's when someone's making up a story that it contradicts because it's not being recalled it came from their imagination Recent memories should be consistent. People may add information, but it should never contradict. Deceptive accounts often inadvertently slide into present tense for that same reason. Liars embed lies in truth, but show a lack of commitment. You know, not sure, don't remember, maybe, about salient details and a sharp memory for trivial ones. Analysts strip away extra words and look for qualifiers, hedges, accidental disclosures, indirect answers, stalling tactics. Pam would have made an interesting case study. Her lapses and contradictions begin less than 12 hours after the murder. She she often substituted blah, blah, blah for details that bored her. Asked a yes or no question, she said, in my mind, that's correct. 
When she said she wouldn't take a polygraph and Schwartz asked her why not, she says, why? When she said Betsy was the one who asked for the ride home, Schwartz said, are you, and you remember that clearly? Not clearly. I remember that she asked me to take her home. When Schwartz asked of the night Betsy was killed, did you shower before you went to bed? She said, maybe. I don't remember. I usually do. I take a shower every night before I go to bed. And when he asked of Betsy's daughters, did you set up a trust for them? She said, did I set one up? There is no, there's not a trust set up for them, no. And he said, do you intend to? It's on my mind. Is that a yes or a no? Yes, it's on my mind. Two weeks before trial, Schwartz learned that a forensic computer expert had finally found the document that Pam kept telling police to look for on Betsy's laptop. Schwartz brought in his own expert who determined that, one, it was the only document on the laptop with the author listed as unknown. Two, a fragment with the same text was associated with Microsoft Word 97 software, which was not on Betsy's laptop. Three, her laptop had been connected to a Wi-Fi network called The Club the day Pam watched Betsy play tennis. Four, the Microsoft Outlook email application had been opened at the same time, but because Betsy didn't use Outlook, it wasn't configured and the document couldn't be emailed. Five, cookies show a search for Betsy's signature block on that laptop. And ASCII thought the document incriminated Russ. Well, Schwartz thought just the opposite. And I'm sorry to say, but... Schwartz is a pretty smart man, and I think I'm, I'm with him on this one. Schwartz and Swanson showed up at the Lincoln County Courthouse on November 2, 2015, ready to tear into all this new information. Then a police corporal took the stand and offered more. He'd cleared the crime scene, a quick check of every room to make sure no one was hiding anywhere, and now he remembered seeing water droplets in the ferrous shower indicating a cleanup. Three and a half years later, Schwartz hissed to Swanson. This time, Schwartz had opted for a bench trial, no jury. Askey tried once more to exclude any evidence of an alternate suspect, insisting that Pan Hupp had no direct connection to the crime. And Circuit Court Judge Stephen Omer said he'd allow the evidence. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Chris Hayes covered the second trial, despite two anonymous letters warning him to, quote, stop being Joel's messenger fool, end quote, and was stunned by the contrast. Including the Pam Hupp evidence, he says, give the look of two completely different trials. Even after Schwartz led Lincoln County detectives through all the discrepancies in Pam's answers, though McCarrick maintained that Russ was the only logical suspect. Crime scene investigator Amy Butner testified that contrary to Askey's assertion in the first trial, Russ's tan slipper did not look as, they, as they'd stepped in blood. They looked more like they'd been dipped. She also said she'd found no sign of a cleanup at the scene. The floor was still dirty. She testified that she believed the blood light switch was wiped with a bloody cloth and it bore the texture of fabric. As for the document that was never emailed, well... I've got an, e an excerpt for you. And it goes something like this. I know we talked about this yesterday, but I feel I really need you to believe me. 
I really do feel that Russ is going to do something to me. He continued to tell me how much money he would make after I die. Last night was the worst. I fell asleep on the couch while watching TV. I woke up to Russ holding a pillow over my face. He said that he wanted me to know what dying feels like. I need to change my life insurance. Do you think I could put it in your name and you could help my daughters when they need it? If something happens to me, would you please show this to the police? End quote. Sitting in the gallery, Betsy's close friend, Rita Wolf, thought, and I quote, Betsy would never articulate things that way. She was the fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type. And if she felt all those things, she would have called me for help, not typed a document. End quote. Every time Schwartz walked in or out of the courtroom, he felt Pam's stare burning into him. She was waiting to be called to the stand, and neither Askey nor Schwartz was going to call her. Toward the end of the trial, she texted Swanson and she told Channels 4 and 5 that Schwartz based the whole retrial on me. They were confused why Schwartz wouldn't call me, and I told them he was afraid of the truth. Sounds about right, don't you think? Swanson didn't reply. Four minutes later, she texted, Did Schwartz forget his set of balls today? I would love for him to grill me for eight hours. She waited a while in the prosecutor's office, but she'd gone home by the time the judge pronounced the Lincoln County investigation rather disturbing and read his verdict acquittal. Schwartz had just hurdled the most bizarre series of obstacles in his legal career. His client had finally been acquitted, but he couldn't sleep. Askey still maintained that Russ was guilty. She had no intention of charging anyone else. And Schwartz still thought Pam Hupp should have been a suspect. He wasn't even sure there was a single killer because it would have been such a risk. That first stab, which he figured went into the throat, might not have hit the carotid artery or even exhausted by chemo, Betsy might not have been easy to overpower. On the other hand, he'd seen no toxicology screen. Maybe the killer had offered Betsy a sleeping pill that evening to make sure she got a good night's rest. He picked up the phone, called the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Missouri, and begged for a review of the case. He was absolutely sure that Russ hadn't killed Betsy. And if this case stayed cold because Lincoln County couldn't consider another perpetrator, he said, somebody else is going to die. On August 16, 2016, news broke that Pamela Hupp had shot a man. His name was Louis Gumpenberger, and Hupp told O'Fallon police he'd tried to assault her, demanding Russ's money. She said he'd yelled that he was going to kill her, and she ran into the bathroom for her gun. And when she saw the bedroom door open, she advanced on him and emptied the revolver. Gumpenberger might have seemed scary in his wild teens but a drunken car crash in 2005 smashed his skull against mangled steel and left him childlike, soft-spoken, occasionally frustrated, and unable to process complex thoughts. At 33, he limped, his left hand hung useless, and he only left his mother's house alone for short walks in his St. Charles neighborhood. Less than 45 minutes before the 911 call, Pam's cell phone had pinged in that very neighborhood. 
she told police that after some thrift store shopping, she'd stopped by her daughter's house, roughly two miles from Gumpenberger's apartment, but no one was home. She then drove the 13 miles to her house on Little Brave Drive to let her dog out. And as she pulled up, she saw a man dropped off by someone in, you guessed it, a silver four-door sedan that sped away. She said she didn't know anybody named Russ, although when interviewed a second time, she remembered Russ Feria. On August 23rd, the St. Charles County prosecuting attorney and the O'Fallon chief of police announced their theory of the case. They believed Hupp had lured the man to her house by saying she was a Dateline producer and offering to pay him to reenact a 911 scenario for the show. Then she'd shot him in cold blood. Why? To throw suspicion on Russell Feria for a prior murder in which she was the only other logical suspect. Why then? The heat of scrutiny. Dateline had already aired three episodes on the case and plans to do at least five more, cov- five more, more coverage than it's even given any case except O.J. Simpson and John Benet Ramsey. The U.S. Attorney's Office had begun gathering information for its review. In mid-July, Russ had filed a civil suit against the Lincoln County prosecutor and the three detectives who investigated his wife's death, alleging that they had fabricated evidence, ignored exonerating evidence, and failed to investigate any other obvious suspects. What broke the Gumpenberger case was the revelation that six days before Pam's 911 call, a woman in St. Charles County had filed a police report about a troubling incident involving 911. Mid-morning, a blonde woman had introduced herself as a Dateline producer and offered her $1,000 to reenact a 911 call scenario for the show. The other woman said yes, then panicked. Why? No Dateline business card no camera crew, and would they really pay $1,000 for something like that? She immediately changed her mind. She blurted, and the blonde woman drove her home. The footage on a home security camera would show Pam's Gray 2016 GMC Acadia license plate clearly legible. The day after the shooting, Mark Hupp carried a white garbage bag out to the SUV. Its contents included... Shirley Newman's will, Betsy Feria's death certificate, transcripts of Hupp's police interviews and Russ's first trial, t-shirts and flip-flops, a 1099 tax form showing Betsy Feria as the recipient, and yellow sticky notes with bank account details for several relatives. As for the $900 double-bagged in plastic bags in Gumpenberger's pocket, the serial numbers on four of the bills lined up sequentially with the number with the number on a $100 bill in Pam's possession. A handwritten note in Gumpenberger's pocket told him to kill Pam Hupp in order to get the rest of, the t- of his $10,000, but to first take her to the bank to get Russ's money and leave it in the woodpile at Feria's house. When police interviewed Russ, that last detail confused him. Then he recalled that his dad had some landscaping timbers in the front yard, had Pam driven there to check that out? Russ's sister remembered their neighbor's security camera, and the neighbor offered to go through the footage. A day or two later, he stopped me and said, Hey man, I got her, Russ said. 
She drove by going one way and then the other way going really fast, a GMC Acadia. She had some kind of I Love Dog sticker in her window. About an hour after Hupp was arrested, she stabbed herself, driving a pin into her neck and her wrists. In her mugshot, the expression on her face above a ruff of thick white bandages lands somewhere between grim and mocking. The St. Louis County Police were still conducting their third review of the death of Pam's mother, but had not reopened the case. The U.S. Attorney's Office was still reviewing Betsy Feria's case. No one had been charged with Betsy's murder. Chris Kunza Manemeyer, the judge in Russ's first trial, has had four cases reversed by the appeals court and is suspended without pay. And Betsy's daughters are appealing the civil court judge's decision last February to allow Pam to keep the insurance money. At the end of that civil trial, a Dateline camera caught Pam walking to her car, arm tucked in the crook of Mark's elbow. He kept his head down, but she smiled wildly at the camera, almost laughing, and flashed a peace sign. Now awaiting trial for first-degree murder, an armed criminal action in the Gumpenberger case, Hupp continues to maintain her innocence. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of this episode. Wow. And I'm just going to say, I thought there was a lot of stupid people in this world. And now I know where most of them live. Okay. Anyways, I thank you, my darlings, for joining me as always. I hope you will take the time to reach out to me and share what you think about this case. As always, you can reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And yes, if you want to send me more emails telling me I suck, go ahead. I suck. But you know what? I'm really good at it. So kiss me. And if you have suggestions for future shows or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to all my emails. And on that note, that's all the time that I have for today. Thank you so much for joining us here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you as always. Mwah! We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.